And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to the highest heaven, on earth peace to those who will misfavor rest. Luke 2.10, good news that will cause great joy for all people. We are here at some level because we either A, believe that, or we're here enough to at least discover more about if that could be true for our lives. Great news for all people because of the good news that Jesus has come. And I think the thing that we have to reconcile that even as we understand, you could say theologically, the good news of Jesus is probably the reality of bad news that we have to live with here on earth so often and kind of how those two things come together and how we kind of can hold those uh, in some ways in tension, but also see where the two come together. Billy Graham, he said that the role of the preacher is to have a Bible in one hand, and he said a, a newspaper in the other, uh, of which, who are we kidding, these are our news feeds these days, and, and that the job of the preacher is to bridge, you could say, the, the context of what's happening in the news, whether that's news around the world, or maybe just kind of the headlines in our own lives, with the context and the text of the scripture and how the two come together. And if you've been paying attention at all to the news around the world, we recognize that a big part of uh, the bad news that we've been seeing around the world is uh, what's been taking place uh, in Israel and the Gaza Strip with Palestine and Hamas and all of that mixed together. And, uh, and if you are unfamiliar, uh, what happened is on October 7th, a uh, terrorist organization by the name of Hamas uh, with within their charter is to uh, eliminate, to exterminate all Jews first in Israel and then around the world along with Christians as well. Uh, they invaded Israel and on October 7th they attacked and killed uh, more than a thousand innocent Jewish men, women and children. They took hundreds of hostages. Uh, they took videos of executions and sent them to family members and it was the single greatest killing of Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. Many have referred to it as Israel's 9-11. And so in response, Israel has declared war on Hamas, which has resulted in the loss of life uh, really upon thousands upon thousands on both sides of the conflict. And now really since that day and since that has unfolded, we have seen, you could say, the news media and social media get a hold of that with all kinds of viewpoints and perspectives and opinions and protests that probably have led to some conversations maybe around your dinner table or maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, around your Thanksgiving dinner table uh, or honestly just minimally just kind of like conversations in our own heads and our hearts as to how it is that we should be thinking about this and how it is that we're to respond. 
And as we consider innocent civilians being wounded and killed both in Israel and in Palestine, knowing that this is not just Jews and Muslims, but also there are Christians in both Israel and Palestine as well, that how are we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we think about and how should we respond to this, this conflict? How does, you could say, the text of the Bible speak to the context of what we see happening in the news? And so today I wanna to share with you some thoughts, um, uh, not some thoughts, but some directives from scripture that uh, is a, really a, a direct directive of our elders as we talked about this at our last meeting about how it is that we should be responding and kind of helping our congregation know how to respond. And just kind of a heads up on this, I, I got a lot of help uh, from some other pastors who I both respect from afar as well as those who I have some personal relationships with. And so uh, a, a shout out to pastors Ben Kacharis, Scott Longyear, Andrew Fitzgibbon, Kyle Eidelman, Aaron Brockett, Mark Moore, and Skip Heitzig for their help uh, for me on this one. Uh, that even as we uh, take some time to address this, please don't misunderstand, like this is not, this is not a sermon or a message about current events. This is ultimately a message about what we're talking about. This is a message about Christmas, about the fact that, uh, you know, Advent, it's this understanding, that word literally means arrival, that we celebrate in this season, the arrival of Jesus, that he first came as a baby in a manger, but also this season, Advent, is really about how we're looking forward to the reality that he is coming again. And how is it actually that these events that we see happening around the world actually play into and move us closer to that day of his second return rather than further from it? And so, to kind of give us a starting place uh, together for this, again, on October the 7th, and, and really what continues to happen right now as we speak in the Middle East, um, this is a continuation. It didn't start on October the 7th, but really a continuation of a conflict that's been taking place for more than 4,000 years. This is a 4,000-year-old uh, problem, you might say. And uh, you know, we, again, we recognize that we walk into the room with our own sets of problems. Uh, your problem might be you know, a few days old, or a few weeks, maybe months, maybe a few years old. Maybe your problem is literally three years old, like you saw them on stage. Uh, it was a three-nager that you just uh, have as your problem right now in life. And, I actually, I love the way that one comedian put it. He said, whoever came up with the term terrible twos probably felt like a real idiot when their kid turned three, <laughs> right? And so we, we all walked into the room with problems that we're gonna walk back out with of various degrees and seasons, but none of us walked in the room with a problem that is 4,000 years old. And so I appreciate the sobering reality and perspective that theologian N.T. Wright gives us on this. He says, we need to understand that this is a 4,000-year-old conflict, that it is on the other side of the world, it is multi-layered, it is complex, and there have been generations trying to fix this problem and can't. Therefore, we should approach it with a great amount of intellectual and emotional humility. And I think we would agree that the posture of humility isn't what we tend to see in the news or social media. And so with humility, and while humility is honestly just a great posture, according to the Proverbs and scriptures and lots of other scriptures, to pretty much approach anything in life, it is particularly helpful when it comes to this situation. In that what has been playing out for 4,000 years in the physical realm is actually more deeply a spilling out of what has been happening in the spiritual realm. 
Earlier this year, uh, as a church, we studied the book of Ephesians, where we are reminded that, quote, our struggle, it is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, and so this, this spiritual, physical intersection, again, it didn't begin on October the 7th, but it dates all the way back to the beginning, to, to Genesis, that in Genesis 1, God creates, but within two chapters, Adam and Eve, they kind of spoil that by entering sin, and God, uh, and this curse on the world of what God had created gets kind of, kind of tainted and recreated uh, with Satan's play in that, and so that's in Genesis 3, and then from there, we see all kinds of evil starting to play out in the world, which leads to the great flood and Noah's day in Genesis chapter 7, and then from there, a few chapters later, we have the story about the Tower of Babel, where people are trying to kind of replace God, and so it's the scattering of nations and different um, you know, languages and all of that, and so that's Genesis chapter 11, and then we turn the page to Genesis chapter 12, where God really starts to you could say show his hand as to his rescue plan for this fallen world through Abram or Abraham. As the Lord says to Abram in Genesis 12 verse one, to go, to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, which we now know as the land of Israel, the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. And so Abraham, he went, he went in faith as the Lord told him. And if you were with us for our last series, Whatever It Takes, we talked about this. We talked about that faith is when we take God up on his go, when we say yes to his go, to go to a place that we have not yet been trusting in his promise that he is the one that is leading us there. And so very specifically, that promise or that commitment or biblically what's called a covenant, a term that is up to God's commitment to something that's beyond anything we know on earth, God's covenant, his commitment to Abraham and his descendants, he says this, quote, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so here what we see in Genesis 12, you could say are three parts of this covenant, this commitment, this promise of God to Abraham. And that first we see in verse one that, quote, the land I will show you. So number one, that's about the land, the promised land that we now know as Israel. Second is the lineage, verse two, which he says is gonna be a great nation, which means Abraham is that word, his name literally means a father of many descendants. And then third, so the land, the lineage, and then the promise of who is the Lord. The Lord, the Messiah, the ultimate descendant that will be Jesus Christ who is to come, who will be the one who ultimately blesses all the world, blesses the nations, blesses all the peoples of the earth, who we now know as the gift that is Christmas, what this series is all about. And so that's Jesus, but then we also know that there's a very real enemy, that if God is Holy Spirit, that Satan is an unholy spirit who comes against this in the spiritual realms that plays out in the physical realm. And that really in response to and retaliation to God's plan, Satan, he perverts this plan that God has in the world and that you could say that whatever God creates, Satan recreates, he, 
counterfeits. Like that is how Satan works. His name literally means deceiver. That whatever God creates in this world, whatever goodness he brings, Satan is on a mission to recreate and counterfeit what God has created in his original design. And so to illustrate this, let's say hypothetically, let's say that if God gave us the gift of Fruit Loops, well then Satan, he gives us Fruit Spins. Or let's say God gave us Pringles. Satan gives us Prongles. Or let's say God gave us, which I believe he did, Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper. Satan gives us Mountain Shountain and Dr. Bob. Because whatever God creates, Satan, he, he twists, he recreates, he counterfeits, he copies and then makes it for the purpose of deception. And so as silly as that is, that is really an illustration of what Satan does, that what we see not just again in uh, our own lives, but then globally speaking, we recognize, we have to remember is that when, when we face battles, whether again around the world or the headlines that are maybe taking up our own lives, that when we're up against battles, external battles, maybe it's a, a battle in your marriage where you just don't understand why this season, like there's just no fun, everything feels like a fight, or, or maybe it's that the seasons that come with singleness and the battles that go with that, uh, or maybe it's a battle at work or kids, a battle at school, that we have to remember that ultimately this battle beneath the physical is spiritual. And not just on these external battles, but even on the internal battles, the internal battles in our bodies, whether through an injury that's plaguing you or an illness that has a hold of you or you know, just internally in our minds or the battles in our hearts. Like We have to remember that the battle ultimately is not uh, against another person or even really against ourselves, that underneath all of it, Ephesians 6 again, that our struggle, it's not actually against flesh and blood. That our enemy is not our spouse or our boss, or, or more broadly speaking, our enemy is not against uh, people of a different political persuasion or a religion or a nation, but, quote, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so this is what we see manifesting itself, playing out in particular in the Middle East, to which when it comes to God's threefold promise of the land, the lineage, and who is the Lord, Satan's scheme, is what Ephesians 6, he has these schemes to distort and to twist. He opposes God over these three questions. Like, did really God say? That's how I say, did God really say? Did God really say, who is it that gets the land? And whose lineage is it that prevails? And who really is the Lord? And so if you recall the story in Genesis chapter three, that Sarah and Abraham, they are, um, they're advanced in years, and God has this promise of this lineage that's gonna come through their offspring, but Sarah, actually in a, in, a, in a moment of lacking faith, of really impatience with God's plan and his promise, she decides to take matters into her own hands. And before I just back the bus over Sarah, I think we gotta be fair to ourselves in the sense that we too understand this temptation. That even if you're here today and you would say, yes, Jesus is the Lord and the leader of my life, like he is in the driver's seat, I am sitting in the passenger seat, uh, like, like, you know, carry under, like he's got the wheel, whatever. That even when 
That's true. There are these moments, these temptations, these times where we doubt God's word, we doubt his promises, we maybe grow impatient with his plan. And even though we'd say, yes, God, you're in the driver's seat, that from the passenger seat, sometimes there's this temptation to, to, kind, of, to kind of reach over and, and grab the steering wheel, to, to maybe just help things along a little bit. But how often does that leave us ripping the car into the ditch? And so that's what, that's what Sarah does. She takes matters into her own hands. And Sarah, who is not yet pregnant, she tells Abraham to sleep with her servant, Hagar, who is a pagan Egyptian woman, by the way, and says, hey, maybe she'll get pregnant and she can have a son and we can kind of get this whole lineage thing started on our own terms. And Abraham, he has to own his own misstep here. He sleeps with Hagar, they have a son, and they name him Ishmael. Now, look what Genesis 16, a few chapters later, prophesies about Ishmael and his descendants. It says, quote, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. And so, this prophecy about Ishmael is that he would be in constant conflict with his brothers, and in particular, his half-brother, Isaac, who we have in Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, God's actual plan, his promise fulfilled, that through Isaac and then through his son Jacob, they would have 12 sons whose lineage would then become the 12 tribes of Israel, and then from whom the day would come, Christmas, the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ child, Jesus would come. And so that's God's plan, but again, when God creates Satan, he counterfeits. And so Ishmael, he too, he grows up, and he has 12 sons. And so essentially what you have is you have one father, Abraham, two mothers, two sons, two sets of 12 grandkids, and one covenant. And they're all fighting over these questions. Who gets the land? Whose lineage will be blessed? And who ultimately is the Lord? And so you have 600 years after the first Christmas, after Jesus comes, you have a man by the name of Muhammad who is born. And Muhammad, he goes into a cave. He claims an angel appears to him, selecting him as God's chosen messenger to proclaim a new message, a, a new gospel, uh, a new religion called Islam. And Islam contends that the Hebrew scriptures are wrong, that God chose Hagar, not Sarah, that God chose Ishmael, not Isaac, and that here's the result from their perspective, that all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant belong not to Isaac's descendants, not to the Jewish people, but to Ishmael's descendants, modern-day Arabs. And so Muhammad's message in new religion, it, it is contrary to the gospel that has been handed down by the apostles because whatever God creates, Satan recreates and he counterfeits. And we could make the argument uh, that the Apostle Paul, though, uh, in the New Testament, he's writing to a specific situation in the Galatian church in Galatians 1, where he says uh, that there are perversions of the gospel being preached, that he really foreshadows these future perversions of the gospel, saying, evidently, 
Some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And get this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And so Islam's gospel, Islam's message claims that the land, the lineage, it all belongs, belongs to, to their Lord, Allah, not to Jesus. And so here's what happened then on October 7th. You have Hamas, an extremist terrorist organization who are descendants of Ishmael attacking the descendants of Isaac in a continued fight over the land, shouting, Allahu Akbar, our God is greater. Our God is greater opposing the Lord. Because, because behind those earthly rulers and authorities are Ephesians 6, spiritual rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, again, what, what do we do with this? Like, what are we to think? How are we uh, to respond, particularly as Christians and followers of Jesus? Well, I lean back into Ephesians 6 because we recognize, again, that this battle is ultimately spiritual, and so our response, too, should be ultimately spiritual. And so Ephesians 6 gives us further direction on this. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then here's what it looks like for us to be strong in the Lord. Verse 11, to put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And so it goes on to describe what this armor looks like. And a couple of pieces here. Verse 14 says to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And goes on, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so how are we to respond? Well, number one, we respond with the Bible, with the truth that is compiled with God's Holy Spirit intersecting with the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is the word of God. That you could say when it comes to the proverbial, you know, Bible in one hand and newsfeed in the other, I wonder, in particularly when it comes to these times, that if we know more about breaking news rather than we do our Bibles. And so how might we shift all that time and energy that you know, kind of slips into consuming what is coming across news feeds that rather than being driven by breaking news, we can, in view of breaking news in the world, understand it through the lens, biblically, through God's perspective. And then with that, when we, number one, when we know God's word, then we are then best positioned to, number, new, number two, know how to best pray. Bible and prayer. We call those Sunday school answers. The reason we call that is because you'd be asleep in Sunday school, someone could call on you and you'd be like, the Bible, pray. <laughs> and it's right every time. And there's a reason that they're right every time because they are right. That's what the scriptures say. It's God's word that is truth that we wanna buckle around our waist. And then it goes on in Ephesians 6. It says in quote, pray. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests 
which is about how it feels, right? Whether, again, in our own worlds or the world around us, like there's all kinds of cares and concerns, and so our best response are all kinds of prayers and requests. And so with the Bible and with prayers in mind, Paul goes on, he says, with this in mind, he says now, be alert. Be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And so who are the Lord's people? Well, we see in the book of Psalms 122, very specifically, it says to, quote, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To pray for Israel, of which through Jesus, we as, for the most part in this room, are non-Jews, have been, Romans 11, it says, grafted into the people of God. And so with this understanding, I really appreciate the perspective and the encouragement from Pastor Aaron Brockett on this, uh, where he states, quote, we can simultaneously hold two things in tension, to pray for the conflict to end while also praying for God's justice to be done and evil to be stopped. And even though people are screaming, quote, you have to pick a side, end quote, we can hold intention, being grieved over the loss of life in Israel and in Palestine, and standing with Israel biblically doesn't necessarily mean we're taking a stand on foreign policy decisions. But we are recognizing the God who has given his promise. And so as you again, kind of take all this in and consider all this, you know, whether the, the context of what's happening around the world or even the text of the scriptures and you just maybe sit there and you think, man, I, I don't fully understand all this, but I think if I was in charge of these things, like, I think I would do things differently. You might even think, like, if I was in charge of things, like, I might even have a better way. To which I lean into the quote by the late J. Vernon McGee, who reminds us that, you know, this is... God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And so according to the God of the universe, the Bible, the scriptures, like what, what does all this then mean? Like what does it mean for us to be alert about these things? What is, you know, is this Bible prophecy fulfilled? Like are, are these the last days? Like is the end near? Like is this it? We don't know. It could be, maybe not. But here's what we know. And here's what all this definitely means. And, and frankly, here's what all this actually has to do with Christmas. That again, in this season of Christmas, that is all about both remembering the first arrival of Jesus and anticipating his second arrival, the coming of Jesus, that is most fully about, yes, he came once in humility as a baby in a manger, but the scriptures say that he is coming again. He's coming in glory, and he's coming as a conquering king. It says in Revelation 19, uh, on a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, and on his robe and his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That, that the first time he came to live only to die for the world. But the next time he comes, he will come to complete the victory that is already won, that is already won against Ephesians 6, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And when he returns a second time, when it comes to all this 
pain and questions and concerns and tears and mourning and death and crying and pain that the promise is that he will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and that he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I'm making everything new. And so write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And so, when will, this, when will this day come? Even Jesus says, I don't know the time, the hour, only the Father knows, but it will come, and it will come like a thief in the night. But he says there are signs, you know, that there are, you know, a whole other sermon for another day, but, you know, prophecies that have been fulfilled in the last 75 years that indicate that we are way closer then we are farther from that day. The, the, the scriptures talk about like, like birth pains. You can tell like, 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 like something's coming. And again, Jesus himself not knowing the day or the hour does warn us to be alert. That, that, it, that he will come like a thief in the night. So be ready. And so really the, the question is, the application is for us, are you ready? Like, are you, Ephesians 6, are you alert? Because within the full message of Christmas is yes, the gift that Jesus has come, but also the promise that that day will come again, that he is coming again. And so in this room, ultimately, there are only then two people, those who are ready and those of you who are not. And so for those of you who are ready, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna remember this season. We're gonna remember that Jesus, in fact, came, that he came, yes, to live, but also to die, to pay a price that we could not pay for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be given the gift of a new life through his resurrection, both in this life and in the next. And for those of you who are, you're, you're not ready, or, or maybe you're just not sure you are ready, then we want to make sure that you don't have to walk out of this room the same way that you walked in or the East Auditorium or online. And so we would be honored to have that conversation with you here in a little bit at the end of the service. Uh, Pastor Adam and I will be up here. We'll be happy to have a conversation with you in here. Heather in the East Auditorium or online, you can text or call the church phone number because this is good news. This is Luke 2.10. This is Christmas. It's what it's all about, that this is good news that will bring great joy in your life and this life and the next that's for all people who say yes who say yes, who receive and open this gift that is Jesus, both in this life and for the next. And so, with that in mind, I wanna invite all of us to reflect on this truth in the lyrics of this song, uh, and I'll take some time after that to lead us in communion. And so reflect on these words and the truth about who our God is in Jesus.